Hi everyone, this is Ben Schiffone here. Thanks for your interest in listening to my sermons and talks. Uh, I just wanted to give you another heads up that the place where I'm sharing my sermons will be changing as I'm now transitioning from serving as a professor who's involved in ministry part-time uh, to serving as a full-time pastor in a church. Uh, this feed will now be mostly for sharing just academic talks and other presentations that I give. And um, if you'd like to hear my sermons that I preach at Center Church Grove City, um, you can go to the Center Church website, which is centerchurchgc.org, or to their YouTube page where um, most of the sermons will be uh, my sermons. Occasionally someone else will preach, but that's going to be the main place that I will be preaching for the foreseeable future. And uh, for this feed, I will no longer be using FeedBurner and the Out of Exile uh, WordPress blog to share my other talks. Uh, the new link to paste into your podcast tool would be https colon slash slash thinkhardthinkwell.com slash category slash podcast slash feed. Or you could just go to the description for this episode and uh, paste that link into your podcasting tool. So thanks for your interest. And now here is the, ser the sermon that I preached for the first Sunday of Advent at Center Church, the first Sunday I preached uh, at this church uh, as, as the pastor. So I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Well, it is uh, wonderful to be with you all, finally. It's the end of a time of transition and, and preparation that has lasted a long time for, for our family and even longer uh, for you all. And it's also the beginning of something new. So we're very grateful for that. And it's fitting that we start this journey together at the beginning of the season of Advent. Advent is not something that is commanded in the Bible. It's part of the church's tradition. Uh, it's a season in the church calendar which consists of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And uh, the church's ritual calendar begins not with Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, not with January 1st, not even with Christmas, and, uh, but actually with, with Advent, with a time of preparation. Advent means coming or arrival, and it's during this time that we await with eager anticipation the arrival of Jesus at Christmas time. And it's an important reminder for us that the story of God's relationship with his people with, with, and with humanity does not begin with the birth of Jesus, even though that is the most important climactic moment in that relationship. But God was also at work in ancient times through his special people, Israel, from whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come. And he continues to be at work in the world today as we await Jesus' second advent, his second coming, uh, his coming to rescue and to rule the world. So in the church calendar, we, we retell and reenact God's story of salvation each year. But each year, we ourselves get a little bit older. And many of you are saying, don't, don't remind me. <laughs> um, but we all get older, and we have seen more steps forward in our relationships to God and, and in God's story. 
And I'd like us to, to step back and think about stories or big stories for a minute. All of our lives are governed by stories, whether we realize it or not. They're stories that we, we tell ourselves about our own lives, stories, of our, stories that our families tell us about who we are and what we should do, stories of cultures and nations. For example, I live out the story of being a husband and a father, and the scripts that I have in my head and my heart for that story are kind of a mix of things I picked up from my father and other fathers in my family, things that American culture, stories, TV, movies, advertising, what that tells me about what fathers should do and who they should be, and hopefully uh, what God's word and, and what godly men in my life have shown me uh, fathers and husbands should, should do and be. For some people, um, the, like for my, my grandfather, uh, the script for the story of being a father was as straightforward as bring home the paycheck and uh, discipline the kids when they get out of line. And a father that doesn't live up to that story is a failure. And so these versions of the script, the scripts that we have in our hearts and our minds, they're not all the same. And I think that we can objectively say that some are truer and better than others. Uh, there's some better ways and not and, and worse ways to be a husband and a father. And this is what I mean by uh, a story, or at least a story of a, of a role that one would have. I also think about big stories of our cultures and our nations. Uh, the, 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 term, the term big story um, you know, is, maybe you could use the fancier term meta-narrative, but, but big story also works. Uh, big stories play a role in shaping our national identities and in the lives and life choices of individuals and families. There was something published uh, by the New York Times a few years ago called the 1619 Project. Now, 1619 was the year that African slaves were first brought to America. The 1619 Project very explicitly sought to recast 1619, rather than, say, 1776, as the founding of America. And the reason for this was straightforward, to cast the whole American project as something that was tainted from the beginning by slavery. Whereas if we regard 1776 and the Declaration of Independence as the beginning of the American country, the American project, the story becomes one of, of an ideal, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, that this nation has imperfectly lived up to, but is gradually getting better at. And my point is not to debate the merits of, of either of these positions, but to show how the starting point, when you draw the starting point for a story, how it matters for the overall meaning. The past, the past can't be changed. We can't change past events. So why do we keep arguing over their details and their meaning? It's because they matter for our sense of identity and how we live our lives in the present, and for truth, and for justice. And beyond the, the national level, to the level of Western culture or civilization, we live in some ways according to a story of progressive development, that life started out primitive and tribal, simple, short, violent, unpleasant, but that we have developed technology and science and economic planning and social structures such that 
life is inevitably gradually getting better for most people. And there is a lot of truth to this story when we think about how many people have been lifted out of terrible poverty in just the last few decades. The, the spread of, of information on the internet, or even just simple but amazing treatments uh, like antibiotics that I've been very grateful for in the last couple of months. Um, there are some blips, blips along the way on this, in this story, like you know, slavery, communism, fascism, nuclear weapons. <laughs> but for the most part, everything is getting better, so the story goes. And this belief in progress is reflected in the fictional stories that we, that we tell. Um, we, uh, this story of progress is, is, in a sense, beyond the whole genre of science fiction or comic book stories, um, the movies and books. Uh, sometimes the assessment in these stories of progress is, uh, is positive. We have the story of some obstacle gets overcome by the heroes, and then humanity and whatever it is can move forward, can advance. Human progress advances. But other fiction expresses concern about what this progress is doing to our humanness. How many, you know, there's a lot of movies about how human society is adopting a technology, but then losing something crucial to our humanness along the way. And there's, there's one more weakness with this progress story. And we like stories that tell us something timeless about our existence and about beauty and about justice and goodness. But our cultural story about our origins, where we come from as human beings, is strictly the evolutionary origin of humanity and our culture. So the problem is, if life and culture and technology have just been the product of, of chance, of evolutionary chance, then there really is no basis for us to say what is moral, beautiful, and true. All we can say is that what we have here is what has worked so far evolutionarily. And this, I think we, we all understand, this is deeply unsatisfying because we know there are things that are good and true and beautiful and some things that are not. So we're stuck with this sense in our hearts and our lives that, that our lives connect to something eternal, something meaningful, the origins of humanity in our past and some future resolution or consummation, that we are we're heading towards something good and important. Well, I'm here to tell you today that we're gathered in this room to be part of a story that's even bigger than all of these others that we've talked about. And in fact, it is the big story that puts all of these others in their place. We're here in this room because we and billions of other people around the world today and those who have lived before us as well, that we believe the following. The real story of the world has been handed down to us from a tiny, traumatized Middle Eastern people who were mostly oppressed losers in the international scene. And we believe and proclaim that their book, this book here, tells us who we, where we come from as humans, how we relate to the unseen realm, and the visible world, uh, how, what is wrong with the world, and how that wrong is addressed. And we believe that this is not a made-up story with examples for us to follow, like Aesop's fables. Uh, we don't believe that this is a, a made-up origin story, like, like Virgil's Aeneid that makes the 
Romans feel better about themselves because they could imagine themselves as being descended from the ancient Trojans. This is not the story of endless cycle of human events. All this has happened before. All this will happen again. A story of losing ourselves in the flow of the universe. This is not a story of the triumph of humanity over the world. The story from this tiny, traumatized Middle Eastern people and their book is instead a story of a personal, knowable God who created all things and sustains them. This God created human beings to reflect his glory into the world and to graciously rule over the world. Humans rebelled against God because we wanted to reflect our own glory into the world. And this glory we actually have none of in and of ourselves. And this rebellion has resulted in the alienation that we see. The alienation, uh, we, we, we compete with one another, with each of us, uh, to reflect our own glory into the world rather than God's glory. And, and tragically, we as humans have sacrificed what once gave us life, God's glory, God's breath. And so we die and we decay. But the story is a story of God relentlessly pursuing a plan to rescue his creation and his images. The story tells us that God's plan will succeed and individuals can either get on board with it or we can suffer in our continuing rebellion. And this story has implications for how we think about our purpose in life, how we think about our relationships to others, how we care for the vulnerable, how we care for the environment, our work and our priorities, how we love our families, and much more. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we will read a few verses, each from chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this starts on page 3 in the Bibles that are in your pews, if you're here uh, with us and using that Bible. We will start in chapter 1, verse 26. Read a few verses, and then one verse from chapter 2, and then the first part of chapter 3. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now let's go to chapter 2 and read verse 7. Next page. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for, the food, for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's so much that we could draw out of these texts, and some of us have heard them or read them many times, but maybe for some of them, for some of you, they're, they're new to you or you're, or you're younger, and it's the first time reading this, I would encourage you to read these first three chapters, which are the Bible's statement about the world and how human beings got our beginning. And if you don't own a copy uh, of the Bible, uh, please come see me and I'll get you one. What I want to focus our attention on today is the glory of the God who creates and how he endows or gives some features of that glory or nobility to human beings. In, verses, or in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see that human beings are created on the sixth and final day of creation, but that they're different from all the other animals because they especially reflect the image of the creator God. Now, God made all of the animals to be fruitful and multiply. That's true. And that's what he tells the humans as well. But he also gives these first humans rules that channel and uh, and, uh, and guide our impulses that we share with these other animals. And he gives us additional desires and purposes as well. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. And this can be thought of as the desire for, for sex and reproduction. But we're not just to do this like animals. He makes preparation in chapter 2 for the committed pairing of one man and one woman in marriage. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, make more images of God and use and take joy in the creation. Make gardens, build buildings. He says, rule over the animals and the plants. And the word rule over is not a word that means to exploit, but rather take care of God's good creation as God would. 
These are not mandates or purposes or desires that are given to the other animals. These are things that God, words that God speaks to humans as kings and queens of creation who reflect his glory and his majesty to the rest of the world. These are the words that God speaks to humans as as priests mediating the presence of God in his garden temple into the whole of creation. In Genesis 2, we read that Yahweh God, the Lord God, forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into the man's nostrils the breath of life. This is something special from God, a human spirit or soul, the the immaterial or spiritual aspect of our being that makes us different from all the other animals. And it makes humans special in that we can, we can speak and we can understand words. Yes, we have some, some animals can understand some words or sounds, word sounds, but only humans can understand and communicate concepts like justice, beauty, and truth. And Yahweh God makes humans to have special relationships to other humans, which are different from the relationships that we have with animals. I always chuckle a little bit when I hear about a couple who decides to to get a dog or a cat to sort of test the waters to see if they're ready to have uh, children. Um, I've I've lived uh, at times with dogs and cats before. I don't don't have any right now. Um, Don't plan to have any. Um, But, uh, and and I also have children. And I can tell you that having, uh, you know, the relationship you have with your child who reflects the image of God back at you as you hold her, as you love her. That's nothing like having a dog. Um, but to be honest, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of dogs, and I am a big fan of babies. So I'm a little bit biased. You can take that, uh, take that as, you, uh, as you will. And finally, from this passage, we should note that when God creates all the other things in the world, it says, he saw that it was good. But when he creates man and woman after everything else, it was very good. Tov ma'od. Humans are the final glorious pinnacle of God's creation. So when we come to chapter 3, this is why it's so tragic to understand all that human beings lose when they rebel against Yahweh God. Let me point to just a few things as we continue to see the glory of human beings as God's images and what it looks like for them to lose that glory. First, what does the talking snake say to the woman in the garden? He convinces her that Yahweh God is is holding back something from them that they don't have. He says that if she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, what does he say? He says, you will be like God, knowing good and bad. Well, the irony is that the man and the woman are already like God because he made them to be. And they already know something about what is good and bad because God told them. By listening to the words of the created thing, the snake, rather than the creator, human beings substitute their judgment and reasoning for God's word. Another way of thinking about this is that they are images, yes, but images that want to reflect or image their own glory or presence into the world rather than God's glory, which is the actual source of their glory, their beauty, their identity. An image is only really an image if it's an image of something else. And as soon as they grasped at this thing that they already had, they lost their glory. 
And as you can see that they know as soon as they eat that they have lost something that, that covered them because they realize that they're naked and they feel something lacking. They, they try to cover themselves. And while they were perfectly reflecting God's glory into the world, they didn't feel that they were lacking anything because they were clothed in God's glory. I'm not sure if this analogy is a, is a good one, but have you ever taken a long, hot shower on a cold winter day? And um, you finish the shower, and the bathroom is still really, really steamy, right? And so when you turn off the water and you start drying off, you know, it's, it feels like you're still clothed in that warm steam. But then you wrap yourself in a towel, and then you step out into the, the hallway, which is room temperature and normal humidity, and that glorious warm steam is gone, and you feel naked and cold, right? And so then you hurry off to the bedroom to, to get dressed. That's, that's like a taste of what I feel like, the, what I imagine the, the man and the woman felt but not just, not just physically exposed, but spiritually having lost that glory of God that clothed and animated them. And there's a, there's a more biblical uh, image of this loss of glory that we find in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And you can turn there if you want. It's on page 1170, Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. In these verses, Yahweh God, the God of Israel, expresses his outrage and his pain because his people, Israel, have abandoned the source of their glory, which was their God in their midst. So Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares Yahweh, the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Think about that image. Uh, a cistern is, is a well, sort of like a well, dug out of stone in order to hold water. But, but unlike a well... It's not like water seeps, up, seeps into the cistern. It has to be filled up with water that's being stored, taken from somewhere else. So it's more like an underground tank that they would use uh, in, the, in the ancient times. And then in order to keep the water safe and fresh, you would have to, to cover it. And if the cistern had a crack in the inside, then all the water would just begin to drain out. But can you imagine digging, or, uh, digging and lining and filling up a cistern or a tank with water that you needed when you have a reliable stream or a spring of fresh water right nearby? I mean, that would be, that'd be so much better, right, to just have, have a spring of water. And it would be easier and, and much more fresh. You would only dig a cistern if you think that the stream is dirty or it's going to dry up. Well, God says to his people, I am the living water spring. I am what makes you glorious. I am what makes you alive. I am what makes you prosper. But they have chosen to reject him and to try and haul and store their water from somewhere else to be their own glory. And what happens to that pitiful, stagnant glory? It just runs into the ground like water in a broken tank. <clears throat> 
So God has created us to reflect his glory and his presence into the world and to have fellowship with him and with one another. But these humans sinned and lost that glory and they wanted to image and present their own glory and divinity, quote-unquote divinity, into the world. And what's the result? Alienation from the God who used to walk alongside them and enjoy them. They blame one another for what has happened. They have an adversarial relationship with the creation. The plight of human beings ever since Genesis 3 has been trying to get at that glory in our own ways, but never quite finding it. And and wondering why we have this impulse for something more, something greater, to be and achieve something glorious, but we can never quite make it happen on our own. And so we find our own ways of, try to find our own ways of projecting our image into the world instead of imaging God into the world like we were designed to do. In search of satisfaction and meaning, we impose our wills on the physical world in ways that are destructive instead of edifying. Instead of enjoyment, we just consume. Instead of loving relationships, we substitute sex and sex appeal. Instead of building civil society on trust, mutual respect, we substitute politics, power, manipulation. These are all perversions and misdirections of the good desires that God has made us with. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, verses 20 to 25, which we won't read, that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And so God gives us over to these degrading lusts. And this is what we're stuck with. The animal desires that God gave us, plus these glorious abilities that God gave us and the purposes and desires that he's given us as his image. But because we're broken and rebellious, images, we, we misdirect it, and we waste all of our glory trying to, trying to self-image. But thankfully, there is good news. In the Bible, we read about God's plan to heal and repair this broken image of himself, and that plan reaches its climax with God himself taking on human nature in the purpose of Jesus. And we will explore this more as we go through Advent But in Jesus, we have the exact opposite, or someone who does the exact opposite of what the man and the woman did in the garden. Instead of grasping at equality with God the Father, which he already had, he humbled himself to the point of death, the shameful death on behalf of other people, as Paul says in Philippians 2. I want to look at just a few verses from Romans chapter 8, that's on page uh, 1757 in the church Bibles. 1757, Romans chapter 8. And in this passage, Paul is rounding off an explanation of how God has worked and is working to save people from every nation from the deadly consequences of our rebellion against God. And here's what he says in verses 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 
Paul says that these humans who are his people by faith, our destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And this doesn't mean that we're all gradually going to look more and more like first century Jewish carpenters. It means that the Holy Spirit is going to be healing and repairing and curing us of our rebellion and making each of us able to reflect God's image in the ways that each of us individually were intended to. And notice the end of this process. It says predestined, called, justified, glorified. And this refers to our hope of the resurrection from the dead. Let's go back a few verses and read verses 18 through 21. Actually, 18 through 23. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Look especially at verses 18 and 21. It says, the glory that is revealed in us and the glory of the children of God. Again, this is not some glory that comes from us as humans, but the glorious and beautiful way that we reflect the glory of our creator into the world. And because humans were created to reflect God's loving rule over creation, but we failed to do so, the creation has suffered under poor management. But this is the work of God to heal and repair and redeem us as his images. And, and the first fruits of the work of the Spirit, verse 23, is the promise that he will accomplish that. Well, the theme that I've chosen for Advent this year is God's glory in our midst. Uh, sometimes we'll, we use the biblical term Emmanuel, which means God with us, to sum up the meaning of Advent. And this is, this is true, and we'll sing it in just a few minutes. But too often, I, I think God with us can sound like God is just there to support us in whatever we do. Um, he's, we, we think of God as if he were a kindly grandfather or a vending machine or a tool in our toolbox, kind of available to us and helping us on our path that we ourselves have chosen, not dictating where we should go. But that's not the biblical understanding of God with us. It's more helpful, I think, to picture the glory of God in our midst like that steam, like that smoke, surrounding, filling, transforming, and present with us. And this will be what we talk about next week. At the beginning, we talked about stories and loss of a, the central story, I think, in our culture. We have no real story, and that has brought about fragmentation, disunity, purposelessness, and lack of meaning. Right? Think about how many people have no purpose in life and are depressed and anxious. In the four Sundays of Advent and Christmas, we will highlight four movements or four moments in the story of God revealing his glory to his people. 
And this speaks to the longing, the loss of meaning, beauty, purpose, justice in our world. There is a true story of human existence that that gives us purpose and meaning. Other stories from our culture and our own lives cannot, they, they don't really compare to this story. We rebelled and lost God's glory, and and so we live lives of of futility, trying to reflect our own pitiful glory. But God is on a mission to return his glory to his world. There is hope. God is in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor and glory for creating this world and for creating each of us in your image. And we confess that we have fallen short of that glory, each of us. We've each lived out our own desires on our own path for our own glory. We praise you for this promise that you are at work in the world. We thank you, God the Son, Jesus Christ, for dying a rebel's death to take the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion. And we thank you, God the Holy Spirit, that you would continue, we ask you, God the Holy Spirit, that you would continue your work in our hearts to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus so that we can live as we were supposed to. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, that as you work in our lives, you would also work in the hearts of our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors, Let their hearts be warmed and their minds be open to hear this message and prepare us to share this message with them whenever we get the opportunity. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.